Welcome to Empire State Engagements. I'm Dr. Robert Childs. These days, money and politics is a hot button issue, but it wasn't always quite that way. As Dr. Marsha Barrett shows in her new article for the New York History Journal, millionaires are more democratic now. Most New Yorkers during the gubernatorial regime of Nelson Rockefeller were either unaware of or indifferent toward the tremendous power that his money had in the Empire State's political life. I spoke with Dr. Barrett about her new article as well as her broader scholarship on Rockefeller and the Republican Party. I think people sort of forget when they just sort of think, well, there was an era where there were Rockefeller Republicans and there was this diversity. And it's like, yes, there was diversity, but a Nelson, Rock Nelson Rockefeller was not the, you know, figures like him, they were not the majority within the Republican party. And there was actually a great deal of tension. And there were many people who thought a figure like Nelson Rockefeller did not belong in the Republican party, right? He would be the rhino even in that moment. Welcome to Empire State Engagements. I am really excited to be joined today by Dr. Marsha E. Barrett. Dr. Barrett is an assistant professor of history at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and she has a really great article uh, about to come out in the next issue of the New York History Journal, uh, issue 102.1, entitled Millionaires Are More Democratic Now, uh, Nelson Rockefeller and the Politics of Wealth in New York. And so I'm really grateful that uh, Dr. Barrett is joining us to talk about her article on Rockefeller and wealth, but also her broader project uh, on Rockefeller, which is in the uh, midst of uh, becoming a forthcoming monograph. Um, and so first of all, welcome Marsha to our program and it's really generous of you to join us. Um, Thank you for inviting me to, to talk about the article. Absolutely. It's great to have you. And um, I love this article of yours for so many reasons. Uh, and one is that you immediately, uh, I think, draw uh, the readers in by exploring how the history you're talking about 
continues to reach into the present moment. Uh, and you noted uh, that in 2017, uh, a noted business person was uh, now president-elect, and there was a great deal of questions about the ethics of their wealth and uh, politics and their business empire. Uh, and spokespeople for the president-elect suggested, well, why is everyone so upset? Uh, this sort of scrutiny is unprecedented. Back in 1974, you want to talk about wealth. Uh, the very name uh, Rockefeller is synonymous with wealth. And here's this Nelson Rockefeller, and he just easily becomes vice president. Uh, no questions asked. Now, a lot of people at the time uh, decried that as false. Um, but beyond just saying actually there was a 128 day scrutiny of Rockefeller, you seem to use that as an entry point to a longer history and a broader discussion of wealth in politics. Um, and so what arguments are you able to make uh, through that sort of entry point of 1974? And then we can look back at Rockefeller's evolution in New York. Um, definitely. Um... Okay, so I I was actually in preparation for our conversation. I was thinking back, thinking back to like how all of this came about um, for me, sort of thinking about this project and or this particular article. And right, journalists, you know, many people, sort of everyone on Twitter, sort of when they heard um, uh, then President elect Donald Trump's tax lawyer, right, say that no one cared when Nelson Rockefeller um, was nominated for the vice presidency, you know, everyone in, in, you know, me too was sort of, you know, joined in and thought, well, obviously that's incorrect. But that moment sort of took me aback personally because I had been researching Nelson Rockefeller um, since 2009. And I realized in that moment that I had not actually, I'd sort of taken his wealth for granted in a way that it sort of, once I sort of sat back and thought about it, I realized, you know, I really sort of, you know, missed almost like the elephant in the room in a sense. And it made me realize that while the tax lawyer statement was obviously incorrect about 1974, that idea that, you know, people didn't necessarily care or sort of took Nelson Rockefeller's wealth for granted, you know, actually had some truth to it when he was governor of New York. So it actually inspired me to go back and look at the sources that I had been looking at for years and, you know, thinking about, so how much did his money matter? right, when he decided to enter political, um, decided to run for office, and, you know, how did it impact the state of New York when he was the standard bearer of the New York GOP? Um, so, I mean, there were, there were certainly moments, like, when in my research, it appeared in my research and in my manuscript, where, you know, I noted that Nelson Rockefeller's wealth and sort of the understanding in the state, New York, the New York State um, Republican Party, that he would happily self-fund his campaign um, was it was a it was persuasive to many party leaders in New York, and I knew that, and I knew that that sort of that definitely gave him. Um, an advantage that he could sort of help convince people in the Republican Party that, you know, in the party had been underfunded for years, that 
a Nelson Rockefeller running for office could really be a great opportunity for the Republican Party. Um, but I, I realized that after that moment, I didn't necessarily pick up that thread and, and, and sort of pull it through the entire project. So that was sort of what I decided to do um, with this particular article. Um, and I realized that, I mean, in some ways, my sort of taking his wealth for granted sort of reflected what happened in the press when he was governor. Um, and because the wealth, his wealth doesn't necessarily appear so much so in the historical record. So, you know, I, it's, so I, I'm not really, so I guess I'll say I'm not pointing fingers at anyone in terms of sort of taking, you know, taking this for granted or not looking deeper into sort of the impact of, um, money in politics when it comes, when it relates to Nelson Rockefeller. But I realized that the fact that, so the more I dig, I dug into this, I realized, okay, when Nelson Rockefeller became prominent in New York politics, that was a moment when campaign finance law was weak in the state. And really voters and average New Yorkers didn't really have much of an opportunity to really understand what Nelson Rockefeller was doing to um, like advance his political career and campaigns because there wasn't really reliable disclosure. So one of the main points of my article is sort of making the case that without that, uh, that layer of scrutiny and without disclosure laws, it's difficult to know how money is functioning and advancing a politician's career and that if we look at this, this period in particular, you realize that before and after the um, campaign, like the federal campaign finance laws of the 1970s that were revised, that wealthy politicians in particular have been given um, a great deal of leniency, right? They have sort of more leeway than the average um, uh, political candidate and politician. And that's really what's at the core of this article. I, I absolutely agree. And I think it's fascinating how you, by the end, and I'll probably ask this later on, but you sort of wonder if the standards of the early and mid 70s had been applied to uh, earlier portions of his career, what that would have looked like. Um, but uh, that'll be worth asking in, in a bit. You, you mentioned something a moment ago uh, that I think is a really uh, useful starting point for sort of Rockefeller's actual story here. And that is he immediately is plausible to the New York State Republican Party because of his wealth. How is he able to sort of gain credibility? The, the machinery of a state party is always fascinating with the, the mechanisms at the county level and different organizations here and there. And you demonstrate that right from the very beginning, that is his entry point, isn't it? And talk a little bit about that if you Sure. Um, so Nelson Rockefeller, before he became truly active in statewide politics in New York, right, he had served as um, an advisor to Franklin Roosevelt, to um, Harry Truman, to Dwight Eisenhower. So he had spent time in, uh, in D.C. and he was very much involved in and, and very interested in, in politics, but he wasn't well-known in New York politics, other than he has a recognizable name. Um, but really, his sort of, um, probably maybe his most important uh, foray into New York politics is when the state party leadership 
held a meeting to with wealthy who with potential wealthy donors right to help pay for basically to help fill the party's coffers and after one of those meetings right in the mid 1950s Nelson Rockefeller sort of reveals to um, Judd Morehouse that you know he has you know ambitions to be in politics and you know when he's talking to the um to Morehouse and Morehouse is like you know this is sort of an interesting idea maybe we should explore this more I mean he's also the person who you know is sort of saddled with trying to um you know cover campaign debts for the party so you know Nelson Rockefeller is certainly appealing kind of hopeful like, oh maybe this will be you know he'll he'll be a great candidate for us um, and one of my uh, favorite anecdotes is when, um, to sort of test, the, to help Nelson Rockefeller test the waters, he is sent to, he is sent to a gathering of like a, a Republican women's organization to talk about economic policy and sort of what, you know, sort of Eisenhower's administration's approach to the um, sort of recession at that time. And, you know, this would be a difficult, topic, I think, for maybe anyone to make like exciting, right? This is going to be an engaging talk about, um, you know, economic policy on a hot summer day. Um, but what I love is that initially, the first thing that Nelson Rockefeller did was he held the microphone. There was a there was loud feedback. He dropped the mic I was like, is that, was that me? <laughs> and then proceeded to um, give this what you know, I think people sort of agreed was like an awful, you know, boring speech. And Morris like is, and so then, you know, there's sort of like Morehouse is worried that uh, maybe he's not going to be like our, our best bet. Um, but even in that, in, in that moment, Nelson Rockefeller sort of later showed himself to be what was always true, um, that he was a great retail politician, right? He could, introduce himself to anyone and sort of create a, a rapport and sort of connect with people. Um, you know, there were many conservative, conservative Republicans later on in his career who admit that, you know, we might, we might hate him. We might always complain about Nelson Rockefeller, but when you meet him in person, you just can't help but sort of, you know, enjoy engaging with him. I'm sure some people just like, like the fact that, ooh, we're talking to a Rockefeller, right? Um, but yeah, no, there's sort of all of that backstory, but essentially, right, he is this, you know, a relatively young man who's never been involved in electoral politics in the 1950s. And, but the Republican Party in New York is struggling to figure out who should be their, the, the nominee for governor. And there's no clear choice, you know, someone who really has statewide appeal. So when you have someone like Nelson Rockefeller, who, you know, has name recognition, automatically, right? And you don't have, a, and, and the party didn't have a sense that we, there were, it was likely to win. You know, it gives Nelson Rockefeller sort of a, a, a it gives him an advantage that he wouldn't have had otherwise. It just seems like the perfect uh, confluence of features here for Rockefeller, right? Because they, the, the Republicans uh, in the beginning of your story seem rather desperate, which is interesting because they had had a, a, a moderate Republican governor with a national profile for a long time. And so they've only been, I guess, one term right out in the wilderness at this point. And yet they're sort of financially struggling and he can solve that problem. He turns out, as you, as you suggest, he turns out to be quite charismatic, quite good at politics. And he's not 
it's not like he doesn't know what he's doing. He's been a credible member of three different uh, national uh, administrations. And so it seems like the perfect uh, moment for him to enter. And yet it wasn't a given that Rockefeller was going to win, was it? And, and he's not the only, uh, I'd like to talk about 1958 for two things. Number one, did he and did the Republicans think he was going to win or was he just a solution to a problem? Mm. And I guess a, a related question is, uh, he's not the first scion of a Gilded Age robber baron to be governor of New York, right? I mean, the person he displaces uh, is a Harriman. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, uh, I, you have some wonderful quotes uh, from that campaign where people sort of cynically say, we're going to, they call them the, what, the gold dust twins. Uh, <laughs> and they say, we're going to replace one millionaire with another. Um, so talk about that campaign, both how it featured these uh, children of, of, of wealth, uh, and uh, also whether or not Rockefeller and the Republicans believed he had a, a chance. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the party, party leadership thought that Nelson Rockefeller was the solution to a problem. Um, because like what was actually interesting about Nelson Rockefeller, Nelson Rockefeller in this moment and the New York Republican Party that maybe people don't realize is that Eventually, Nelson Rockefeller, right, and Rockefeller Republicanism, Eastern Establishment Republicanism, you know, Nelson Rockefeller would be a stand-in for the New York Republican Party. But in reality, the Republican Party was far more conservative, far more to the right than Nelson Rockefeller ever was. And in that moment in the 1950s in particular, there was a sense that Nelson Rockefeller, he, you know, he would be called a New Dealer. You know, some, you know, some, <laughs> some conservative Republicans in the area would even refer to him as, you know, maybe he's pink, right, a reference that he supports socialist uh, policies. We now we think of Rockefeller, like, really? But no, that's, you know, that was sort of the language that, you know, he was this big government politician who maybe didn't value money in some way because he was so wealthy, perhaps. I mean, I'm just sort of, you know, that maybe that was their sort of thinking, but because he was associated, associated with like the Roosevelt administration, for example, right? There's a sense that he doesn't actually represent, you know, New York Republicans. And in reality, you know, there were more Republicans sort of like Nelson Rockefeller in New York City and in the suburbs. But if you look at the estate as a whole, he was not the perfect representation of what the Republican Party looked like. And that was really the conflict that the New York Republican Party had had for years. Do you, do you choose a party leader who is conservative, who more is really sort of reflects the party in a more sort of holistic way? Or do you choose someone who is, you know, more, you know, someone who's embraced, you know, in an earlier period, like New Deal policy, sort of embraced big government, because that's more likely to be, be popular in a general election in New York. So that was sort of what the New York Republican Party was dealing with in that time. And there's that sense that, so Nelson Rockefeller doesn't, while they have, they have certainly nominated people who sort of look like Nelson Rockefeller in terms of their policies before, right? It was always a little bit of an uncomfortable relationship. So, so there's a sense that, you know, not only, so Nelson Rockefeller doesn't necessarily represent the New York Republican Party. And then when you look at his background and the policies he supports, he looks very much like the incumbent Democratic 
Governor Avril Harriman, who had also worked in the Roosevelt administration. They had a number of similarities. Um, so there was a sense that, you know, you could sort of say on a number of levels, it was unclear why Nelson Rockefeller would have sort of a, a credible chance. Um, other than the fact that, you know, Avril Harriman had, and when he first ran for governor, had sort of developed a reputation for not being maybe the most charismatic of politicians, sort of not the greatest, you know, person sort of interacting with, with the voters. But he'd gotten better over time as he was governor. Um, but so you could say perhaps that maybe Avril Harriman, he did perhaps have some weaknesses, but it was in general, Republicans in New York thought that this was a, a bad, it was going to be a 58 would be a bad year for Republicans. There were some anecdotes from the time where people say, well, you know, we'll let the young man run and, you know, get some experience. And, you know, they didn't really have high expectations. Um, so I think that's sort of what helped Nelson Rockefeller to get to the nomination. Um, you know, but ultimately when he sort of went before the state convention in New York in 58, um, of course he had this extremely lavish uh, <laughs> um, experience. Like the convention was very, you know, the decorations, everything was lavish, but he gave this, you know, a good speech and people thought, well, you know, maybe there is, maybe we have some, a chance here. And I think when you look at maybe that general election, perhaps, you know, one of, so what Nelson Rockefeller did to sort of draw a distinction between himself and Avril Harriman is actually tied Harriman to the um, Tammany machine, right? So, what is- maneuver. Right? <laughs> of course, you know, sure, like, why not? But really, it, it's not only a classic maneuver, but it was probably the only thing that Nelson Rockefeller can really point to, to say is different between him and Harriman. I mean, so then as time passed in the campaign, you know, Harriman was trying to draw Rockefeller into conversations about national policy. And Nelson Rockefeller would refuse and say, well, no, this is a, this is a state election, right? I care about state politics. I don't know what your, you know, <laughs> you know, and this is supposed to be a reflection of, um, you know, you know, maybe it's, a, it's time for New York voters to choose someone else. Um, but I, I think, and maybe in the end, I think maybe Nelson Rockefeller, because it was a very well-funded campaign and he was having the time of his life and he was, um, you know, he campaigned hard and, you know, you definitely saw that he had real talent in that campaign and, you know, ultimately, you know, he is able to win, but it, it really wasn't necessarily, it wasn't a campaign where you can point to any particular policy and say, this was the policy initiative that, you know, Rockefeller presented that was distinctly different from Harriman's. And that's what got, no, that, that is not what happened <laughs> in 1958. Um, that is not the distinction. Um, so, you know, so yes, yeah, so that's why a classic maneuver would be a, a good a good maneuver uh, potentially in that moment, or at least one of the only ones he may have had. Well, that's great, and I'll just say briefly, and I don't know if there's more than what you uh, give us in the, in the article, but his inaugural uh, celebration features Cab Calloway and the New York City Ballet, and I'm just reading this and just imagining. But I mean. I think that gives us some insight into where this is going and what you suggest he's doing his entire time, which is he's willing to spend to make this, uh, you used the word lavish earlier. And I think that everything about this administration turns out to be lavish, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Like from the very beginning. 
Yes, for sure. And, you know, you actually, you know, as a historian, I think you'll, you, you will, um, I think any historian would probably really appreciate this. You know, I re again, after spending years in the, the Rockefeller Archive Center, so Nel which holds Nelson Rockefeller's papers, right? I, I worked there for years and I, I mean, I was always sort of, this was something I always sort of considered um, because it was just sort of like a hurdle I had to get over in the archive, but he always had state staff and personal staff who were working on state business. So there's like multiple series of papers in his archive where you have like, you end up, you'll end up looking in three or four places to find materials on like one state issue because he had numerous people working on the same issue. And part of it was, I think, part of his, um, you know, sort of leadership style where he wanted to, you know, get different perspectives from different people who are working on a project and then decide, okay, what direction am I going to go in, right? But he's able to have all of these staff members, right, to have this, um, you know, all these people working for him because they're on his personal payroll, right? So he was never afraid to spend money to, you know, bring his vision to life, right? And you can see that in how he ran the, ran state government. Um, it's just, you know, even that matter where, you know, he wants to get to Rochester or Syracuse quickly, you're not going to take a state car. You're, if you're Nelson Rockefeller, you're going to fly on your private jet. And then that just becomes the norm for the governor of New York. So then you have later governors like Hugh Carey who are just sort of marveling at, you know, and I mentioned this in the article that, you know, no one could afford the fantastic staff that Nelson Rock, like no one, you know, normally could do that. Um, you know, so, I mean, you couldn't, and there were some people in New York who definitely, you know, there were some critics who said, you know, he has this large staff just to really run state business so that he can pursue his, you know, his, his, his desire to be president, right? To sort of, he can spend his time trying to gain the Republican presidential nomination while his personal staff is working on state government. And there were people who thought that, um, you know, is that who question, is he working for the benefit of the average New Yorker? Is he working for his own benefit? But, um, so there were some people who did have some questions, but over time, I think most people sort of just took for granted that he was spending this money and many, and many voters and taxpayers would say, well, I mean, he's spending his own money. I'd rather him spend his money than my money, um, right? But of course, when you sort of sit back and think about it, there are a number of questions that you'd, you know, you'd wanna ask about you know, what's really happening. Uh, but much of the time it does sort of appear that you know, he maybe is a little bit impatient and wants to get a lot of things done at once. And he is going to pay a staff to do that. He actually would, he actually did the same thing when he worked for, um, as an advisor to presidential um, administrations. He, he would come into DC, hire 20 people, and now 
Nelson Rockefeller has this massive staff. It so really was who it's, I think it was who he was. Um, but it sort of sets this interesting and sort of complicated precedent, right, for uh, maybe future wealthy politicians who can do the same thing um, and, and may be able to do that because people aren't necessarily asking a lot many sort of, you know, people aren't asking a lot of questions consistently, at least about, you know, you know, is there a conflict of interest here in any way? Should we be concerned that people are working on the personal payroll? Um, but, you know, so, but although maybe in the, in the grand scheme of things, it's probably uh, not that many governors maybe have that precise. So, you know, they don't really, they can't have that kind of huge staff, but it, it sort of, you know, speaks to the singular nature of, you know, Nelson Rockefeller, governor of New York. Yeah, and it's interesting too, because as you describe it in the article, and as you describe it here, when you combine his sort of personal executive bureaucracy with his unique version of patronage, which you, you discuss, which also, I mean, patronage is certainly not anything new here, but the way it operates under him and with his wealth and his favors he's able to do to certain elements of New York Republicanism, is this almost like a, a, a self-funded one-person political machine almost that hmm. sort of stands out from a traditional machine right because um especially with the patronage issue because he uses it in a, in a sort of unique way right mm -hmm. no i you know i think that is an apt comparison um so in 1974, right, we, you know, because of the inquiry into, um, you know, the congressional inquiry into sort of Nelson Rockefeller's previous um, time as governor, you know, that is when the public learned that, you know, Nelson Rockefeller liked to give people who worked on his staff, like Henry Kissinger, for example, just large sum, you know, sums of money to sort of help them out. And it, and it would be referred to perhaps as a loan, but then he might forgive those loans at a particular time. And now this is a gift that this person has been given. Um, so you have that happening for Nelson Rockefeller, but you also have, I think that he, there was a way that he was also, um, you know, very good at or you know, strategic about using maybe more traditional forms of patronage, like with judgeships, for example, to you know give them to politicians, so that um, you know that might be the way that he would sort of get over sort of a conflict in the state legislature, right? So someone who has been an opponent of Nelson Rockefeller's idea for months suddenly you know, votes in favor. And then the next year they now have this position in state government where they're gonna be making, you know, they have this salaried position. Um, so that, and that's not unusual, but you know, so Nelson Rockefeller was definitely doing that work as well or doing that as well in the background. Um, but maybe more, what was really probably people, you know, the New Yorkers probably weren't aware of the fact was that, you know, he was, you know, giving people who were in his inner circle, you know, you know, money. And I mean, there's, and there are many sort of, I think, gifts and like vacations and, and opportunities that people receive that would be very difficult to track 
after the fact, right? Some of these, like the maybe the largest gifts we sort of, you know, learned about through Congress, but much of this you wouldn't really know, I think, or be able to track um, really by design, you know, what's happening behind the scenes. But that certainly sort of helps him to, you know, I mean, I mean, I guess you could also say that this is also a moment where, or forgiving someone alone, or maybe helping to pay someone's mortgage, right, would lead to opportunities where, you know, people would end up on Nelson Rockefeller's staff who otherwise, you know, wouldn't have chosen to go into state government. Um, so one, you know, someone might say it was just a way of bringing talented people, right, into his administration um, who might not have joined otherwise, but it's facilitated through his sort of personal, you know, finances. Well, and you point out a couple of things uh, in the article. Uh, one is that, as you just mentioned, most New Yorkers, unless they were involved, didn't know about a lot of what you're describing uh, through most of his time as governor. But they did know he was wealthy. They did know he was willing to spend. And as you point out several times, they didn't seem that troubled by it. Uh, he commissioned, I think you say, a poll right before he ran. And it said that the wealth and his family name was, was a benefit rather than a liability. Um, I think in 62, Morgenthau, the challenger, tried to use campaign finance as an issue and it didn't seem to take. Um, mm -hmm. So New Yorkers admire his use of wealth or they're just, they don't care? Or, or how, how would you characterize the public reaction to Rockefeller's wealth? Well, you know, the way that you, when you were uh, phrasing that, framing that question, it made me think of, um, right, the role of philanthropy for the Rockefeller family and John D. Rockefeller, right? We could probably say that John D. Rockefeller, you know, didn't care one way or another what the average person thought about him and how he amassed his wealth and then how he dispersed it to people afterward. But, you know, when Nelson Rockefeller ran for governor in 1958, it now, it, it seemed like the, the years of philanthropy had sort of, you know, I don't want to say it did the work it was supposed to do, but in some ways, right, I think the, by the time you get to the 1950s, you know, Nelson, the, the Rockefeller name is very much associated with philanthropy and doing good works in the state of New York. And I think at one point, um, you know, Nelson Rockefeller equipped in the 58 campaign, has anyone ever heard of the Harriman Foundation? Or, you know, so now like, the fact that he comes from a family that gives back, right, is of, of of value, right? And I think there are, you know, I think many New Yorkers, you know, appreciated the fact that the Rockefeller family, you know, is giving back. I don't think they're necessarily, necessarily as many people are thinking, oh, this is a tax write-off or this has some sort of political purpose or, you know, some sort of, um, you know, this is, this is something that's benefiting the family. I think people appreciated that the Rockefeller name was associated with good works in the state of New York. And, you know, so him being, coming from this wealthy background is not a bad thing. Um, I mean, I think I, I also mentioned in the article, there was a, um, I think Fortune magazine, right, had a, had a, a, did a, conducted a study of like the wealthiest Americans. And many of them noted, right, that, well, many of them are a good, a good portion of them 
had already become involved in politics personally. And they had noted that, you know, in their, the respondents had said, you know, people don't seem to mind, like there doesn't seem to be a great deal of anger about, you know, wealthy people in public life, um, like you might have seen a generation or two ago. And, you know, we seem welcomed into this space and we're happy to participate. And I think that, you know, maybe part of, you know, well, you know, the New Yorkers welcoming Nelson Rockefeller sort of into public life or this public sphere is in part because of sort of the, the sense that, um, you know, well, I guess, to go back to my opening quote, like millionaires are, millionaires are more democratic now, um, but maybe there was less, um, less suspicion of sort of these wealthy figures at that particular moment. Um, you know, and, and I think that does sort of maybe help to um, help that transition for the Hermans and the Rockefellers of the world to enter into public life. And it wasn't all his personal wealth either. You point out, and I, I this is one of the many fascinating small pieces that, that I learned from your article, his stepmother is sort of helping out all along too in the background. Did people, I guess, didn't know about that and, and did it matter or? I, I don't think it, it wasn't widely known, I think, or discussed by um, New Yorkers. I think again, right, I think, I mean, I think you could probably look at any Rockefeller, Nelson Rockefeller campaign and have a sense that this, this is probably expensive just based on all of the commercials, right? That he began like television commercials that he used like begin, you know, like in 1966, for example, and was using very sort of cutting edge and innovative approaches to, um, you know, campaign commercials. I think it was probably, I think you could certainly look at his campaigns and say, this is a well-funded campaign. And you might simply assume, and, and, and you'd probably maybe assume that family money is involved in some way, but you wouldn't have known, right, where the money was coming from exactly. And, and that, as, that too was by design as well, right? You're, the campaign finance in New York at that time, right, you can have multiple, um, you can have multiple sort of groups there's sort of, you know, a pro Rockefeller group that you can sort of donate money to, or they, they can contribute to the campaign. So there are many different avenues for where family can choose to contribute to the camp, to Nelson Rockefeller's campaign. But it's not like a, it's not, you, you have to do, a, you'd have to do a little bit of digging, I think, to figure out where the money is coming from. Um, so I think people just sort of assumed um, that yes, it's his money or family money, um, but it does seem in general that I think many voters sort of thought, well, you know, it's, it's probably better that this person, you know, believes in his ideas, right, and desire to lead enough to pay him, you know, to pay for it himself was actually sort of seen as more of a positive than a negative, right, than you not knowing, well, and people didn't actually know where the money came from. They sort of assumed it was Rockefeller money, but you'd rather, you know, it, that money, a campaign be funded by some Rockefeller affiliated or a Rockefeller affiliate than your average politician who is running a campaign and you don't necessarily know, or you wouldn't assume that you know how that person is paying for that campaign. Um, so maybe I think, maybe it's important to consider in a world where 
you know, many Americans did not know, you know, where campaign finance, like where that money is coming from, right? When you're, if you're living in an ecosystem where you know very little, you're probably, you may be more likely to accept this idea that, well, you know, at least, you know, he's paying for his own campaign. I mean, think, I think we're sort of dealing with a system where we have to consider that he's dealing, he's working in a system where people know very little and that benefits a wealthy candidate who is willing to um, fund their own campaign or get their friends and family to help them fund a campaign. Oh, well, I, I think that's right, especially there, there seems to be an attitude throughout uh, your, your story that, that there's this idea, quite realistic, that you can't buy a Rockefeller. Like they, he has not, no reason to sell out to you, whereas, uh, you know, the classic, the Tammany people, you never know what they're up to. You never know who, who they're selling out to. And so uh, maybe that's refreshing to people. Now, um, you did point out in the article, as his later campaigns uh, where on in 1966, it seems that maybe the money does make more of a difference. That you have people in 1966 saying, um, well, all things being equal, the Democrats should have won this. Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, you, you point out, and you were just describing his, his really uh, broad and innovative use of television. Mm -hmm. um, is that just sour grapes by the Democrats, or did the money really make a difference there? And then, of course, four years later, you've got that biography that you talk about, and, and I'll, I'll just leave that to you as well, the Goldberg uh, situation. But is the, does the money, there's a dark side here too, isn't there, potentially? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, potentially, but I think maybe, um, but I think ultimately we can never, we can never really know. You can never know for sure, right? If that, if the um, money made the biggest difference. I mean, in all honesty, as someone, as a historian who's really interested in policy, right? And what sort of, you know, animates voters. I'm, I am more likely to look at what are the sort of hot button issues in 1966 that's able to sort of, um, that voters can look to to differentiate between two different candidates. And I, I would probably point to those. I would, I would, well, before writing this article, that's definitely what I was, what I was focusing on. And I think that is still very much important. Um, but I do think that something to consider with, with Nelson Rockefeller is that, um, you know, this is not unusual, I think, for um, other politicians. But like when, when he wasn't campaigning, his um, approval ratings would drop. Right. And while Democrats might nominate a candidate for uh, might find their or nominate a, a gubernatorial candidate in, you know, August before a November election. Right. Nelson Rockefeller was I mean, his campaign apparatus was never would never was never dismantled. Right. But a year in advance, a year and a half in advance, you know, his staff is already working and preparing and preparing for that election and that campaign. So there's months and months and months where, you know, you see campaign ads and, you know, Nelson Rockefeller is campaigning when the Democratic Party doesn't even have a nominee. So I think they're all of that sort of so. By the time you get to the general campaign, I think there are a number of advantages that Nelson Rockefeller was able to enjoy um, that would give him, I think, give him a significant advantage over anyone he was running against. So I think that 
I mean, I do think that, yes, the, I think the money, you know, is certainly important, but it is also difficult to sort of figure out, you know, you know, to try to figure out how important or how, if it really was sort of the, the you know, the factor that sort of, you know, turned the campaign is a very difficult um, designation to make. And I think in part because, you know, his campaigns, you know, you know, did last for so, there, there was so much work being done behind the scenes to, you know, reelect Nelson Rockefeller that, you know, there, I mean, there was, I mean, we're, and I haven't even mentioned, right, all of the money he was spending on polling, right, private polling to understand what do New Yorkers think of me in this moment? What do they want me to talk about? How am I going to figure out how to appeal to this particular um, constituency or, or address a concern that his, you know, his opponents did not have access to all of that information. Um, so I think, so again, as I guess I was just saying, because I'm, you know, continued to talk here, is that it, it, it may, it likely made a difference, but it's difficult to say exactly how much of a difference it made. Yeah, and I think you make a pretty convincing case of that throughout the article. It clearly helps him get in. Uh, it makes him somebody they're willing to listen to at the beginning. But, and, and I think what you said before is important. Um, and this might be something to discuss in a few minutes when we broaden to your, your, your larger project, but um, it allows him to have this sort of parallel interests all the time in the state and the nation and not be a completely aloof, inept governor, right? Because he can still be doing both. The money's clearly relevant there. Um, mm -hmm. Before we move on to the, the, to the national picture, um, in 1974, uh, New York State um, reforms their campaign laws, right? And their finance mm -hmm. laws. And you suggest that this is a broader national moment. How, how, much, how much of that is Rockefeller versus America and Nixon and, and, and national trends? It's sort of interesting. You'd think, oh, well, they've just had this incredibly wealthy governor and, and you've laid out the story, but they didn't know that story that you've told us until after uh, the hearings. And so is, is that part of Rockefeller's legacy or is it just part of a national moment? I mean, I think it is the national moment. Um, you know, because I think the, when you look at um, like press coverage, for example, from that period in, in the 1970s, um, there, there are mentions of Nelson Rockefeller that you know, these new campaign finance laws, you know, would have impacted someone like Nelson Rockefeller sort of mentioned in New York. But overall, the sort of narrative and discussion about campaign finance, I don't think looks, looks markedly different in Connecticut or New Jersey, who also passed um, campaign finance reform laws in that same period. As you mentioned, many states did. And I think it really does have much more to do with um, Watergate and sort of a fear of, I mean, I think also like a fear of, you know, sort of unknown outside forces, right, pay, you know, contributing to campaigns and this sense of, um, I mean, really, I think the discoveries of, you know, what happened with Watergate and Richard Nixon that I think led to people thinking, okay, we need to have, you know, more disclosure and sort of a better understanding of what's happening. Um, and maybe even more to the point, right, after, you know, 1974, 
other states have continued to revise and update and strengthen their campaign finance laws when New York has not. Right. So I think you can definitely say that this is I mean, so now you could say that New York has become sort of a, a unique case all over again. Right. But it was but it certainly isn't this a sense that, well, we need to keep the Nelson Rockefellers of the world or, you know, out of our politics that are government government. That certainly has not happened in New York. Uh, well, as I said, it's a really fascinating and important uh, article, and we're really excited that it's uh, about, at the time of this recording, it's, a, it's about to uh, be available uh, to everyone in uh, Volume 102, Issue 1. Um, but it is also, uh, the research uh, that informed this article is, is the fruits of a much broader project. You've mentioned several times your interest in uh, policy in particular, and so if you don't mind, I'd love to talk a little bit more about uh, your research on Rockefeller uh, in general. Um, and I guess something, as I was reading the article uh, that I was wondering, and I think your interest in policy will, will give us insight into this, why did he want to be governor in the first place? Was he just ambitious? Was he always dreaming of being president? Like, what does he want to accomplish as governor of New York? Mm -hmm. Well, what I would say about Nelson Rockefeller is that I think he really believed in the power of government, like good government, improving people's lives, right? From infrastructure to providing health care. Um, you know, he, I mean, you, I mean, you could also simply, I mean, there is that side of him, I think, where he likes, you know, big, grand projects, right? We can look at the Albany Mall as an example of that. Um, but I think that, you know, he had, he had some very clear and sort of distinct ideas about, you know, how government should help people in the modern age. And he thought that, and he wanted to be involved, right? He, I mean, he made, it, I mean, he had an opportunity where he could have gone or run for um, U.S. representative or run for Senate. And he wanted to, he really chose to be, he wanted to be an executive, not a legislator. I mean, he, he would probably, I mean, there were, you know, you find quotes and, and sort of anecdotes where you'd say, I don't want to just sort of talk about what we should be doing. You know, he wants, you know, he wants to do something. Um, but I, I do think at the core, you know, he has this, this sense that, you know, he wants the, he, he, he wants to help people in sort of grand and sweeping ways and through policy. And I think he, he believed that, you know, being governor would allow him to do that on a state level, but, you know, ultimately he, he wanted to be president, right? And I mean, we can certainly sit back and question like, why did he think that, you know, he was qualified or should be the one to be the president of the United States. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, for whatever, you know, <laughs> I would say for, for I don't necessarily spend too much time sort of thinking about, you know, the inner Nelson Rockefeller, but you certainly see no, a number of periods in his life, even when he was a, you know, a young man, um, I guess he would have been in his, maybe in his 30s, sort of like looking at how Standard Oil was operating in, you know, Latin America and, 
you know, he has a critique and he has some concerns about how managers are, in his mind, mistreating, um, you know, sort of like native populations, like the, the residents of Venezuela. And he wants to step in and get involved and, and tell them that, you know, you need to be more respectful to the people that you're, um, you know, we're interacting with. And while for him, maybe that means, you know, and it's sort of another long, <laughs> a long story, you can certainly go into, there's, there's ways you can sort of critique or think that perhaps his critique is naive, but I think no matter at sort of all stages of his life, he sort of looked at systems and thought, you know, how can we improve this? Like, are there experts that I can talk to that can present new ideas that I can then introduce? Um, and I think in his earliest sort of, in his earliest years in, in politics, you really see a number of examples where he's sort of reaching out, trying to sort of crowdsource solutions and information and then wants to present it. And then, you know, sometimes as an, you know, he may not, for political reasons, right? He may not actually, um, you know, advocate those ideas or present them or sort of, you know, back them as, you know, as you might think, he, you know, back them sort of forcefully, right? Based on all of this data that he has. But I think there, he did think that he could bring something maybe unique, you know, to these particular situations. and you know, as I said, you can, you could critique or question why he thought that, you know, he would be the right person. But I do think that there was something, um, you know, he was certainly well-meaning. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the way you describe him, he seems very nicely to fit into a 20th century tradition, at least in New York State, of figures who want to use particularly strong executive government on behalf of a genuine interest in social welfare and, and social justice broadly defined, as you say, whether it's infrastructure or the Sunni system, um, or uh, as you point out, um, I think uh, civil rights becomes an important part of his conversation in New York State. Um, sometimes it looks good and other times it, it doesn't look so good, but, but what is his role, what is his place in that discussion, both in New York and nationally, ultimately? Well, I, mean, I guess I would say just in response to your point, I think, um, you know, Nelson Rockefeller really, he looked up to Franklin Roosevelt and saw him as sort of a model of, you know, what he hoped to achieve when he entered into politics. Um, so, right, he too wants to be, you know, governor of New York and then president of the United States. And, but, you know, he, you know, so, I mean, I think that if you, if you, maybe to understand Nelson Rockefeller and what he was trying to achieve, it would be helpful and useful to look at uh, Franklin Roosevelt as sort of the, the model of what he was, who he wanted to be and, you know, what he was hoping to achieve. And maybe it gives you a sense of, um, you know, who a Nelson Rockefeller was as, um, you know, someone who wanted to enter into public life. Yeah. Um, so as he's governor, um, are there certain uh, initiatives that are especially important to him and to his uh, state and national profile? I mean, you, you mentioned the, the remaking of Albany and mm -hmm. we, we've got a lot of friends in Albany, so, so they'd be upset if we didn't uh, talk about that a bit. That's controversial throughout, right? But is, yeah. is, is that in any way, does that give us any insight into his uh, approach to 
policy and, and sort of using, crafting these grand projects as a sort of manifestation of what you're most interested in, which isn't brutalist architecture, but rather is policy. Uh, so does, does, does Albany or other grand projects like that give us any insight into what you're exploring? Mm-hmm. I, I do think so. I think that is a good example, right? Because, you know, you, maybe from the from the perspective of Nelson Rockefeller, right, he maybe looks at Albany and thinks, you know, this is a space that, you know, it, it's, it, it's not well suited maybe to, and this is just in his perspective, right, you know, to this, there, we can make improvements to Albany, right, to sort of make this a place that will, you know, facilitate, you know, policymaking and people coming together and, you know, making, um, you know, Albany sort of like a, a real center that people can kind of go to and, you know, that's fitting the state of New York, right? Now, it's, it's his personal, it's his perspective, right? And he might have a sense, okay, there are some communities that we need to clean up and, you know, that can be, um, you know, there are areas that could be, um, renewed, right? So I think in some ways, I mean, I think maybe Nelson Rockefeller also, I mean, you could probably, you could find a number of examples in his career where, you know, he he sort of fits into that mold of, um, you know, politician and um, bureaucrat who's interested in like urban renewal projects, for example, that you sense that there's a problem in a community and you think that if you can just raise that community and replace it with a office building or some sort of, you know, private, public, um, you know, (laughs) private public facility where you have some apartment buildings and we can also make sure that there's some business, you know, that that was a very common sort of popular idea in that moment, right? Now we think about, well, what was the value in those communities, those neighborhoods that you are going to raise? Like, what are we going to lose in the process? And I think that perhaps his desire to sort of focus on that big picture and his ultimate goal, right, means that those ultimate goals are more important than maybe the perspectives of the people who are living in that community at that moment, right? And that's, that is, you know, the, that's a, a classic, um, you know, problem or conflict, right, or tension in like urban renewal projects in that era. In that era. Um, and that's, and I think that it, it is a representation of sort of he wants to, you know, bring about sweeping change um, and has a sense that this is the right thing to do. Um, but there are a lot of perspectives that get lost in the process. Um, so I do think that's a good representation sort of what he was maybe the, the, um, the potential downside, right, to some of these grand projects. Before we talk about his sort of change of, of attitude or, or, or how much of a change it is, I want to mm-hmm. ask just because, just because it interests me, uh, he has a relationship, uh, an official relationship with Jackie Robinson for a little while, is that right? Mm-hmm. Can talk about that a bit. Sure, no, that's right. Um, so, Jackie Robinson, it's not when they first met, but Jackie Robinson sort of officially begins to support Nelson Rockefeller as a politician during his 1962 reelection campaign. Um, sort of initially, 
Robinson is helping to support Rockefeller in sort of maybe less formal ways. And by 66, that 66 campaign, Robinson was actually working on Nelson Rockefeller's staff, right? So this is, a, you know, one more staffer on the personal payroll of Nelson Rockefeller is Jackie Robinson. And Jackie Robinson is essentially his purpose, right? I mean, he was living in Connecticut, but working in New York City. Um, but because they have, they've built up this personal relationship, Jackie Robinson and, and, and he, and Nelson Rockefeller had a number of other um, African-Americans who worked on his staff and he sort of knew in a personal capacity first, who then worked with him professionally. And their role was to, you know, create connections and strengthen connections, connections between Nelson Rockefeller and the African-American community in New York. Um, and, you know, so they would, you know, serve, serve as like a special assistant on urban affairs, for example. Um, you know, so trying to, you know, as I said, help Nelson Rockefeller connect with African American with African American voters, with the African American community, sort of more generally, and Jackie Robinson in particular. Um, and that around '66 or so, like he was really pushing Nelson Rockefeller to hire more Black people on his staff. You know, so Robinson would make the case that you know. New York is so progressive in terms of race relations. Why is like why is your state staff why doesn't it reflect that? And he pushed, you know, Rockefeller to um, um, hire more African Americans. And by the end of the 1960s, Robinson was no longer um, Robinson increasingly had problems with policies that Rockefeller was forwarding, especially in relation to welfare, public welfare reform. Um, and Robinson really thought that, you know, Nelson Rockefeller was um, essentially, I mean, I, there's a, a line from Robinson in a letter he sends to Nelson Rockefeller where he said, you know, Rockefeller's welfare reform is like a form of, you know, punishment for, you know, poor people living in a like wealthy society. You know, Robinson in time, you know, had consistently had more sort of problems with policies that Nelson Rockefeller was affording. Um, and then, but for Jackie Robinson, he didn't simply stop speaking to Nelson Rockefeller. He didn't just sort of distance himself. Instead, he would, send him letters. He would speak to Rockefeller's um, advisors and let them know what his problems were. Um, you know, so they had, so they worked in a professional capacity, but they also were friends. Um, so that's, so they, they do have sort of a very, a longstanding and somewhat complicated relationship over time. Um, but I think it was, a, it was a significant one. Well, that's interesting, too, because I think that gives us some insight into the evolving policy portfolio of Rockefeller uh, in the second half of the 1960s. In 1964, he is perhaps the antithesis of this uh, Goldwater revolution within the Republican Party. Um, and even in 1968, he's sort of trying to prevent Nixon, right, from getting the Republican mm -hmm. nomination, and people see it as, as you pointed out, 
including Nixon, the Eastern establishment, the liberal Republicans, what, whatever you, you want to call it. Um, and there's a lot, I suppose, to back that up as far as, as you suggested before, his, his genuine interest in using government to help people. But then as time goes on, a lot of these policies, you mentioned his, what he considers welfare reform, some of his drug policies, some of his other, um, why is, are these policy decisions that he's making because he thinks they're in the best interest of New York, or is this back to the ambition? Um, and without trying to psychoanalyze Nelson Rockefeller, what is his effect on New Yorkers? Because I think that's a more important question in the long run, but I think they're both in play. Well, I mean, I think in reference, if we're, if we're, if we're going to, I think a good example or a good way to sort of talk about this is to talk about um, welfare, right? So welfare by the late 1960s or really, you know, and this is of course a long, a long history, but there was bipartisan, right, agreement that welfare was a problem or that it was like the cost, well, the cost of welfare was, um, was rising. There were more people who were requesting benefits. Um, you know, welfare rights advocates, right, were complaining that they, you know, the money they were receiving or the surveillance that was being tied to that money was, um, you know, damaging to, you know, their family life and to their children. Like there are many, lots of critiques of, and, you know, well-founded critiques of welfare um, from many different parties in the late 1960s. But I think a good example sort of to think about with Nelson Rockefeller. So at one point, he decided, um, I think it was like in 19, it was in 1967, that he would go, he would bring together a group of businessmen and say, okay, we have this problem with welfare, right? The, how are we going to fix it, right? He wants to go to sort of the private sector. This will sound, this will sound familiar to many people, right? A politician going to the private sector to find a solution to this public problem. And ultimately the business leaders came together and said, well, you know, the real problem is that you're just, you know, the federal government, the state government is not giving people in need enough money. That's all, <laughs> you know, and their solution was that you should just give people like a, something along the lines of like a negative income tax or sort of giving people like a flat, you know, sort of a sum, a sum of money that you're going to receive annually or, you know, this certain amount monthly perhaps to care for your family and that it's not that the poor have, com you know, committed some sin, it's simply that they you know, need more support. Now, it, th these ideas weren't completely devoid of, you know, sort of like patriarchal ideas about the family and some additional critiques about, you know, how, um, you know, there, there, there's some other added, you know, sort of, there's, there's a lot, it's not just sort of completely straightforward. But ultimately, you know, you know, Nelson Rockefeller paid for this sort of elaborate project to bring all these people together to you know read these papers and and come together and have this commission or this you know um, conference on welfare and ultimately they presented to him a solution that was not politically viable 
at that moment. You know, there really weren't any, there, there weren't, weren't really any major Republican or Democratic candidates who are politicians who were considering like running for the presidency in 68, who were willing to back that type of idea in that moment, right? Eventually Richard Nixon would um, when, he was, when he was president, but in that moment, it was not politically popular. And Rockefeller's advisors said to him, this isn't going to work. And, you know, he is someone who, you know, Nelson Rockefeller then would, by 1968, he had a number of experiences where he would go to sort of more conservative Republicans in the Midwest, for example, and he would often try to present himself in a, like the most conservative light possible, like especially with like economic policy to try to prove to these conservatives in, you know, meeting in Chicago that, you know, he isn't some radical or liberal. Um, so he was sort of accustomed to trying to sort of present himself and, you know, sort of more, like, uh, you know, present himself as sort of like a, a conservative or more standard Republican when he would go out for, you know, running for, um, uh, or trying to get the, you know, trying to win the nominations. This isn't really an unusual experience for him, but essentially in that moment, um, he and his advisors decided that, you know, yeah, this is, a, I mean, this was this sort of elaborate and good idea. We don't necessarily disagree with what these business leaders have concluded, but their conclusions, but this is not going to win you the nomination. This probably wouldn't win anyone the nomination of any major party in, in the United States in 1968. So we are going to, you are going to present a sort of more mainstream solution, like focusing on social services and uplifting the poor to, you know, help them to become, you know, independent, sort of those kind of ideas. So that's an example where you could see, I mean, it's not, it doesn't make a Nelson Rockefeller unusual in any way, right? But there is this moment where, you know, he has the, you know, the means to pay for studies to come up with like the leading, most cutting edge solution to a problem. But then once he had it, he decided I can't present this to, you know, as a part of my policy platform and win in the nomination. So I'm gonna go in a different direction. And, you know, ultimately, after he loses the nomination in 1968, he continues to sort of embrace those ideas, like that first focusing on social services and uplifting the poor to by 1969, accusing welfare recipients of, of cheating the system, right? Of, and, and even when there was evidence, you know, he would, you know, you, you have, you know, studies being conducted and sort of research being done in New York to say, okay, how much, you know, how much grift is there? You know, how many people are, how much money is really being lost because of people, you know, cheating the system? And there was very little evidence of fraud. But despite that, he would continue to focus on that fraud as the the reason why it was it was legitimate to want to cut welfare roles, right? And that ultimately hurts welfare recipients, the, the poorest members of society in New York more than anyone else. And I think that that really was, 
you know, driven by politics for Nelson Rockefeller. But, and, and, and while it is sort of interesting on an individual level for Nelson Rockefeller, that's one of those moments where I think Nelson Rockefeller is a really important and interesting figure to look at because, you know, he is very much, like he is weighing his options and sort of considering, you know, what to do in, in the same way that politicians across the United States were doing. Um, so it really probably says, it says more, I think, about the politics of that moment and sort of, you know, our, the, the country's ideas about um, you know, the role of government and its ability to care for people and who should be cared for in that moment. And it seems like, from my perspective, uh, kind of a, a, a sad story on a, a number of levels. Um, first of all, um, because he comes in as this ambitious uh, politician whose ambition, at least in part, is to do, it sounds like you're saying genuine good policies to help people. And there's a point, maybe it's late 1960s, where uh, convenient politics is now overshadowing or trumping good policy. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like once he makes that choice, there's not much turning back. And the, and the, ultimate, the ultimate victims here are uh, the very populations, the very constituencies that he had been trying to help and to cultivate. Uh, and so then it becomes a political issue as well because it also affects republicanism in the nation. Um, but at that point, he's scrambling to catch up, right? Because as you suggest, the, the political climate had changed. And so on the one hand, he's, so it's, it's sad from his perspective, I suppose, too, because he looks almost pitiful, because mm -hmm. he's scrambling to catch up with the Reagans of the world and, and uh, people like that. But in reality, um, he, he just looks, it, it looks like a betrayal, right? Is, is that ultimately his legacy in the 70s uh, in New York? Hmm. Or is that too harsh? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I don't know if I would say whether it's uh, it's too harsh or not, but I, I do think, as I was actually listening to you, I was sort of thinking about, you know, Nelson Rockefeller and sort of that change over time, and I think in some ways, I, there's, you know, this isn't sort of something that you would necessarily see in my, my work per se, like in my writing, but just sort of thinking about this topic more generally, I do think there's a way that when Nelson Rockefeller you know, entered into public, entered into politics, right? People would ask him actually many, often, regularly, they ask, well, why do you, why are you a Republican? Why don't you just switch the Democrats? Like you fit, you know, you're more in line with the Democratic Party. Why are you a Republican? And right, he would sort of point to, I was born a Republican. This is, this is who I am, right? He does have you know, a long lineage within on both sides of his family of connections to the Republican Party. Um, but I, I think that, and, and he would sort of make this case, or he would sort of say that he'd rather be in a party where, you know, he's the one leading people in a new direction, sort of bringing them along, opposed to being in the Democratic Party where he thought, Many of the Demo many Democrats were too far to the left, and he'd be trying to try to pull them back. Um, but it, it, so ultimately, when you sort of think about all of these various sort of pieces that he sort of these ideas he put out there, I think there's a way that I think maybe 
when Nelson Rockefeller entered into politics, he, he thought he could be above politics in a way. Like it almost didn't matter which party he used as sort of the vehicle to get him to that ultimate goal. Like if, you know, if I can, you know, commission a study that proves that um, this particular program is going to work, I can convince Republicans to come along with me, right? I can make this work uh, and convince Republicans that, you know, this infrastructure project or building up the university system will be, you know, I can convince them that, you know, this just makes sense, right, on a number of levels and I can bring Republicans along. And he thought he could do that on the state level and on the national level. And I think as time passed, you know, Nelson Rockefeller sort of realized that he couldn't just, um, he, he was not above like partisan politics. He was not above the Republican party. And if he wanted, it's like, uh, and actually another way to sort of think about this is that when Nelson Rockefeller would, would seek the nomination, typically his um, strategy was I will prove to Republicans who are typically more conservative than I am, that I am the best bet because the polling will show that I have a more likely chance of winning a general election than a Barry Goldwater or a Richard Nixon. Like the polling will prove that I'm the most electable and I will win these people over. Um, but in time, you eventually realize that that's not how you win a a presidential nomination. It's not how you win the, a presidential nomination of the Republican Party in the 1960s. And he begins to, I think, as the Republican Party becomes more conservative in the 1960s in New York as well, he he still he's trying he tries to figure out how can I remain a viable option within the Republican Party. Um, so I don't think that necessarily maybe Nelson Rockefeller changed at his core, but his sense of what was possible within the Republican Party and within sort of politics in general in the late 1960s and 1970s changed. And he decided he was going to work within these new constraints. And the policies that he then chose that would work politically within those constraints often um, had a, a, a serious um, and negative impact on like members of the African-American community, for example, who he had seen and actually probably always saw in his political career as sort of a, as a natural ally in a group that he, um, you know, wanted to work with and support, um, you know, and, and wanted to help through sort of government intervention. Well, that's, that's, I mean, it's really fascinating and in many ways quite, quite sad. Um, I know from our conversations that you've uh, framed your broader project as a failed fight to save the party of Lincoln. Um, mm -hmm. And ultimately, it sounds like that's what you're saying. It's, it's almost, by the end, it looks sort of quixotic and desperate, but also losing touch with the very good that he could have done and maybe was on the brink of doing at certain times. And instead, as you point out, it hurts people. So does, is it almost a, a I mean, you, you frame it as, as a failed fight. So I guess it's almost a, a tragic or, or sad story at the end of the day for mm -hmm. a lot of people. 
Yes, I mean, I, I do think so. Um, I also think that what's maybe, maybe, maybe what I think what one of the reasons or, or one reason why I think Nelson Rockefeller sort of set apart within the Republican Party in the 1960s is that I think Nelson Rockefeller really believed that the Republican Party could be, you know, the party that would advocate for African Americans that would, you know, so the Republican Party would remain the party of Lincoln, right? This this party that was sort of, uh, that advocated for the rights of African-Americans. And he thought that the Republican Party could do that in the civil rights era as, you know, a Martin Luther King Jr., for example, and many other civil rights activists were in the streets fighting and, you know, fighting for policy change, fighting for federal legislation. He really thought the Republican Party could be that key ally for, you know, that the party that would work with this, with the civil rights movement to advance um, African-Americans. Um, so that's why I sort of think about this as, you know, Nelson Rockefeller wanted to, you know, he wanted to sort of breathe life into the party of Lincoln in the civil rights era. And over time, he realized, and, and for him, that meant, you know, fighting for fair housing legislation in New York. That meant fighting for civil and voting rights, you know, acts in on the federal level, fighting for, you know, housing, you know, housing policy on the federal level as well. Um, but in time, I think you're just, I mean, in time, you just, there's this, I think he has this realization, or maybe it just becomes clearer. It becomes clearer over time that the Republican Party, by and large, was not going to support that type of government intervention to advance the cause of African Americans. And Nelson Rockefeller tries to figure out how he can remain a viable candidate and an influence in the Republican Party, despite that initial idea, sort of the, the door that he, that sort of possibility, it starts to close. Um, and I think that's where that tragic side that you're referring to sort of that tragic element comes in. Um, but I think that, you know, I think he wanted to renew that idea of the Republican Party being the advocate for African American rights in that moment. But what was required or what civil rights activists, for example, or the African American community were, what, what they were demanding, right, in that moment was something that most Republicans were simply unwilling to provide. That's, and in, in that way, he has this grand vision, but he's ignoring the actual people. And it's similar to his infrastructure, similar to his architecture. So, so he has this big scheme, but there are real people who are actually affected and, and actually have agency in this conversation. And, and perhaps he sometimes is overlooking the, the actual implications of what's going on. It's a really, uh, it's a really fascinating story. I, I'll, I'll ask one thing to close out. We still use the term uh, Rockefeller Republican these days, and it gets thrown around in many different ways of, of invoking it, uh, sometimes as an accusation or, or a term of derision, sometimes uh, as a term of self-defense for some people, um, and sometimes as a sort of vague uh, 
sort of almost archaic type of uh, member of the Republican Party. Uh, mm -hmm. As a historian of uh, Rockefeller's policies and his political evolution, and also uh, with your brilliant new article for us, his, his role in the politics of wealth, um, how would you suggest uh, we should understand historically a term like Rockefeller Republican? I think the term Rockefeller Republican, um, it, today, typically, it's supposed to be a stand-in for any Republican who is not a small government conservative. Anyone, any Republican who might be deemed a moderate or not quite mainstream, somewhat left of the mainstream of the Republican part, of, within the Republican Party. Um, it, it's taken on this sort of generic idea um, that I think isn't, it's not really, it, and I think as it becomes more vague, it becomes less helpful as sort of a category or any kind of distinction. Um, I also think the idea of Rockefeller Republican, like when people think about it, the, the idea, I think they sort of have this idea that the, the fact that Rockefeller Republicans, these like, um, you know, New Dealer Republicans, like the idea that this, this type of figure could exist. Um, I think people often think that, okay, so the Republican Party pre-1960 or pre-Barry Goldwater was sort of wildly different and far more diverse and maybe more uh, liberal than sort of the Republican Party of the night of 1980. And now there certainly was more diversity within the Republican Party in 1960 versus 1980. But I think what people lose sight of is that, you know, Nelson Rockefeller was not an easy fit within or an obvious choice within the Republican Party of New York in 1958 or 1964. There actually was a lot of tension within the Republican Party and there were many Republicans who thought someone like Nelson Rockefeller was not a true Republican, right? There was, um, there is this real conflict there that I think people sort of forget when they just sort of think, well, there was an era where there were Rockefeller Republicans and there was this diversity. And it's like, yes, there was diversity, but a Nelson, Rock Nelson Rockefeller was not the, you know, figures like him, they were not the majority within the Republican party. And there was actually a great deal of tension. And there were many people who thought a figure like Nelson Rockefeller did not belong in the Republican party, right? He would be the rhino even in that moment. Um, so if I could revise the definition of Rockefeller Republican, I would, I think it's actually more helpful to think of Rockefeller Republicanism as this moment of diversity, but also tension within the Republican Party. And that the Republican Party, I think Rockefeller Republicanism also represents the fact that the Republican Party in like the 1950s um, was a party still sort of on its heels, trying to figure out how can we become, how can Republicans become the majority party again in the mid 20th century? And there were some Republicans who, and because the party was sort of struggling to figure out how it can sort of, you know, become, you know, become the majority party, there were some people like Nelson Rockefeller who offered this solution, right, that would be sort of more, um, accepting of government, um, you know, 
was, you know, more interested in sort of building up the social safety net in, you know, American, American government. But I think someone like Nelson Rockefeller maybe only received a hearing because the Republican Party was was struggling to figure out how do we, how do we sort of present Republican ideas in a way that will appeal to the majority of Americans. Um, so it's sort of so Rockefeller Republican Rockefeller Republicanism. I think as much is sort of a representation of like the Republican Party in that in the mid twentieth century trying to find itself. And that there's a great deal of tension and sort of uncertainty in that moment. And so rather than think that, you know, Rockefeller Republicanism is sort of like this, you know, it, it harkens, back, harkens back to this, you know, a previous party that we sort of, you know, don't know or don't understand. There actually is some, there is some real continuity there. And I think there's some, there's a way that, you know, Nelson Rockefeller in, in sort of his relationship with the Republican Party highlights that uh, many of the sort of questions and, and controversies and conflicts that the Republican Party of the 21st century are sort of dealing with in this moment were there in 1960 as well. Um, so, I mean, I don't know if this is this is you know not the um, sort of like the easiest or more straight most straightforward answer, but I really would like the term Rockefeller Republicanism to sort of reflect the the tension and sort of uncertainty in the Republican Party in that era as much as sort of a you know a, it, then like a distinct political ideology, um, you know, sort of like a stand-in for you know, a Northeastern Republican, you know. Well, that's fascinating. I am so grateful uh, for all of your insights, Marsha, and I'm really uh, eager to read more uh, when uh, the book uh, comes out. And when it does, hopefully you can come and uh, discuss it in more depth with us again. Uh, but for now, uh, thank you very much to uh, Dr. Marsha Barrett. You can read uh, Dr. Barrett's fantastic new article, Millionaires Are More Democratic Now, Nelson Rockefeller and the Politics of Wealth in New York uh, in the uh, next issue of New York History, which will be 102.1 available very soon at the time of this recording. Uh, if you're watching this in the future, you can go back and find it somewhere on the web. Uh, but for now, thank you so much, Dr. Barrett. It has been an absolute pleasure and thanks a lot. Thank you. It's been wonderful talking to you.